As many of you guys know, if you're regular attenders here, Taylor served uh, CF as our intern. He did his internship with us last year, um, last fall and into the spring. And it was such a joy and blessing for me to have him um, to try, as I walked into this role, um, to try and figure out what it looked like to be the pastor here and to have somebody that I could serve with and um, bounce ideas off of and someone who is just a, a constant source of friendship and encouragement. Um, he did a lot. He was going to school full time. He was working. He was doing all kinds of things. And then I was constantly just giving him things I needed him to do. And he did them uh, well. And he did them uh, with great joy and served this church well. And so, uh, Taylor, thank you. Um, I love you. So, uh, you're the bomb. So, um, yeah. Uh, so there's that. Um, the other one is anyone who has been part of or is currently serving on the hospitality team, thank you very much. Um, the team is headed up by Amy, and uh, it's really, it was something that we wanted to get going because it's a way, A, for us to serve in the church and serve one another, and B, um, one of the great things about this church is the, the friendships, the relationships, the hospitality that is shown here on a Sunday morning. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the people who come early. Um, they make sure the place looks clean. They fold all the, the programs. They make sure the stuff is updated on the board. Um, they're greeting people, handing stuff out. And so thank you. If you are on the hospitality team, um, served at all, uh, thank you very much for doing that. And if that is something that is interesting to you, if you think I could come a little bit early once a month and help organize the seat backs and fold some stuff, uh, talk to Amy, talk to Bailey, uh, and they will gladly uh, talk to you more about what it looks like to be on the hospitality team. So thank you, everybody that serves on that team. Um, okay, so new series. Why are we going to study the book of Philippians? Philippians is a book about joy. Um, the word joy or rejoice is mentioned 16 times in a very short book of the Bible. It is Philippians is four chapters long, and 16 times in a very short amount of time, Paul talks about joy. Now, joy is something that is different than happiness. Happiness is a delight. It is a satisfaction based on our current situation. It's based on your current circumstances. So when the Cubs win, I'm happy. When the Cubs lose, I'm sad or angry or frustrated. Happiness is fleeting. It's something that can come and go like the wind, but joy is not like that. Joy is different. Joy is a deep-down confidence that all is well. That no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the problem, all is well. Joy is a confidence of God's control in my life that leads me to trust Him and praise Him regardless of the situation. Let me say that again. Joy is a confidence of God's control in my life that leads me to trust Him and praise Him regardless of the situation. Joy surpasses the moment, it surpasses the circumstances, and it can endure the darkest of valleys. This is a letter, this book of Philippians, this is a letter about the power of finding joy in Christ. 
And so as we study it, as we see the heart and passion and conviction that the Apostle Paul has for these people, when he talks about them, when he talks about his own joy in Christ, what I want you to do is remember the, the situation of when this book was written. At the time, uh, Paul is in house arrest. The book of Acts ends with Paul in chains, stuck in house arrest, arrested, waiting trial in Rome. He's chained up, locked up, and beaten up. And still, we're going to see over the next couple of weeks how in this letter there is an overflowing joy found in Christ. In a time and a world where we are overwhelmed with sadness and death and corruption and fighting, I think this is a perfect time to study a book about joy. Life is hard and can beat us up, and in the midst of that, we need to look to joy. This book is going to teach us about joy in the face of the ugliest of moments. It will teach us about having confidence in God's control in our lives that leads us to trust him and praise him regardless of the situation. I'm so excited to open up this book. I've been wanting to study this with you guys pretty much since January. I'm so excited to get into this book with you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Philippians. God, you are glorious. You are holy and pure and excellent. Though life may be hard and we may go through trials, God, we trust in your goodness. We trust in your plan. Though there is darkness in this world and and chaos in this world, we are not moved, we are not worried, because we know who you are. You are trustworthy. As we read this letter, as we learn and grow, God, I pray that you help us to find our joy and our satisfaction in you. Let the joy of Christ wash over us. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who doesn't find their joy in you, God, I pray that you move in them this morning, that you break down whatever walls that they have put up to you. God, I pray that you overwhelm them with your joy this morning. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up uh, to Philippians 1, and as you're doing that, I'll give you a little more background on Philippians. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, and the first time he actually went to this town, Philippi, um, you can see it in Acts 16. He was actually on his way to another place, and he gets a message, he gets a a vision, and the vision is of a man standing in Macedonia, and he's saying, Paul, come to us, we need your help, please come, please come and help us. And so Paul follows that vision and goes to Philippi, goes to Macedonia. Philippi was an important trading route. It was uh, originally established as a military stronghold. And then once the Romans took over, it became a very important trading route. It became an important piece. It was basically on the one main road that you would go throughout the land. So everybody would stop there. It was a great place of commerce. Uh, It's located in Macedonia, which is today northern Greece, for those of you who likes geography. Philippi is in uh, northern Greece. And so as you read, if you, if you go on your own time, you can look at Acts 16, and you can look at this first time that Paul ends up in Philippi. And in that chapter in Acts 16, you'll see three big events, three big relationships that are formed that kind of help start the church in Philippi. So number one, uh, Paul and his friends meet this woman named Lydia. Lydia works in high fashion. She sells goods, um, clothing and goods that have purple dye in them. Purple dye was very rare and very expensive. 
So Paul shows up to this prayer meeting. He preaches the gospel. Lydia gets saved. Lydia and her household get saved. And then leaving that prayer meeting, Paul and his friends run into this slave girl, a slave girl who was possessed, and her masters made money off of her. Because of her being possessed by a demon, she was able to be a fortune teller. And her masters made money off of her by that. Paul ends up commanding the demon to leave this little girl. And now that they have seen that their cash cow has run out, her masters and a bunch of other people get really angry with Paul. They end up attacking, beating him up, and getting him thrown in jail. But it's in jail. Paul and his friend Silas are singing hymns. They're praying. They're talking about the gospel. And in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake that happens. The chains on the, all the prisoners fall off. The gates fly open. And the head jailer responsible for Paul and for the, different, um, for the different prisoners ends up spending some time with Paul. Here's the gospel, and he and his household are saved. And so right there, in just a few short days, we see the start of Christianity in Philippi. It grows and grows. And this letter that we're going to read, that we're going to study for the next couple of weeks, um, is written about ten years after that. Ten years since the first time Paul goes to Philippi. Now, since that time, he's traveled back around and he's helped establish the church and make sure things are good. But this is ten years, pretty much, since the church was started, since the gospel first came to this town. And so that's where we're going to be. Um, we're going to pick it up right at the beginning. We're going to go uh, to verse 1. So read with me, Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there. It's kind of weird, right? You read a letter, usually when we write letters, we don't sign our names until the very end. You've got to read through the whole letter to figure out who sent you the letter. In that day, it was common, you would put yourself right at the top. You would introduce yourself right at the top. And it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy is mentioned here because he was with Paul the first time he was in Philippi. He had made a few other trips to Philippi, and we're going to find out later in the letter that Timothy is on his way back there to help be part of the church. Outside of this mention, he's not mentioned in the rest of the letter other than saying he's coming to see you. But Paul here is showing honor and respect by mentioning him and as being there, being one of Paul's, um, one of the people serving with Paul. He's showing honor and respect and saying, look, you know Timothy. He's, he's with me on this. All the things I'm going to say to you Timothy agrees with me on this, and, and Timothy is, is valued in my, in my life and in this ministry. Now, it's interesting that he says we are servants of Christ Jesus. In other letters, if you look in the New Testament, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And in other letters, he calls himself Paul he, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He gives himself the title, the authority of apostle. Here, he doesn't do that. Because here, he doesn't want to emphasize his authority. He doesn't want to emphasize... Um, his authority over them, but rather his friendship and his connection with them. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. He is a bondservant. He has voluntarily placed himself in lifelong submission of Jesus. Jesus is his master, and his life and mission is controlled by Jesus. Even his current situation. The church in Philippi knew that he was under house arrest. That's one of the reasons he writes this letter, was to let them know he was okay. They knew exactly what his situation was. And so Paul here is saying, look, Jesus is in control. Even the fact that I'm in chains, even the fact that I'm under arrest awaiting trial, Christ is in control. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, the overseers and the deacons. 
Saints does not mean, you know, for us in our day, we hear saints and we think, uh, you know, miracles, blessings, um, pictures with people with halos around their heads. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says saints in Christ Jesus, it's because the word saints means set apart. You have been set apart in Christ Jesus. Your faith in Jesus has made you different. Really, it's just a fancy way of saying to the Christians, to the church, to those who are part of that identify themselves with Christ, to the saints in Philippi that are in Christ Jesus. And he writes not only to the saints, but to the overseers and the deacons, the elders and the ministry leaders. This letter is for the whole church. The whole church will benefit from it. There is a unity and a universality in his address to them. It doesn't matter what role or place they had in the church, this letter is for them and has truth in it that will relate to them in some way. And I encourage you this morning as we enter into studying this book, it doesn't matter what your role is here at CF, this letter is for you. This letter will affect, will be able to speak into your life regardless of what your role is here. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things that can only truly come from God. The grace of sending his son to die on a cross and offer us salvation when we didn't deserve it, and the peace of knowing his protection and presence with us. Paul makes it very clear. This is a pretty standard opening to a letter. This is a pretty standard introduction. And in these two verses, he makes it very clear just how important Jesus is to Paul. Right? In these two verses, he mentions Jesus three times. His, Paul's willing servanthood to Jesus, the Philippians' new identity of being set apart in Christ, the grace and peace that comes from Jesus. This is a book about joy, but joy that is rooted and established in Christ. And so as we get into this letter, as we read the passage for this morning, Paul is going to express just how much he values, how much he cares for these people. And we're going to see that in his joyful remembrance of them, his joyful affection for them, and his joyful hope for them. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's stop right there. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Paul would think of the Philippian church, and he was thankful for them. He rejoiced in knowing them and praying for them. He found joy in it. When he thought of them, it brought about in him a thankfulness in his heart. Joy bubbled up in him, even in this current state, even in being locked away in chains, awaiting trial and possibly death. He prays for them with joy. Do you have someone like that in your life? Somebody that you think about who has influenced you, their their relationship, their connection with you, has influenced you in such a way that when you think of them, you can't help but smile. You can't help but just bubble up with joy and excitement about them. I want you to think about somebody right now. Think about somebody that's like that in your life. Somebody that just their friendship, their relationship, their encouragement to you can't help. You can't help but think of, just be filled with joy at the thought of them. When's the last time you told them how they, how they made you feel? When's the last time you said thank you to them for being that encouragement? I want to encourage you this week. Send them a text. Give them a call. Write an email. Get real crazy. Write them a letter. 
But let them know what they, have, what they mean to you. Let them know how important they are to you because it's important to tell those people. It's important to encourage people for encouraging you. Paul remembered the church. He remembered the people, and it brought about in him a thankfulness to God. He prayed for them with joy. Paul probably had a pretty long prayer list, right? He probably had a list that was a lot of names, a lot of churches. He met a lot of people. I don't know how many of the people he prayed for produced joy in him, right? There are people that I pray for that I pray and I am excited and I'm I'm so happy to pray for them and lift them up. And then there are people I pray for that it, it hurts me to pray for them because I know how bad their situation is and I wish it was better, but it doesn't bring me joy to have to pray, God, I, I pray that you call them back from whatever struggle, whatever rebellion they are in. But Paul, when he thought about the church in Philippi, he rejoiced over them. As he prayed for them, as he prayed and lifted up their needs and their desires, it brought him joy to do that. Praying for each other is important. We had a prayer 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 and potluck night last night. And uh, for those of you who were there, again, thank you for the food, because every time, man, I just, that food is good. Um, And it's always a good night to get together and pray, and pray for each other, and lift each other up. Prayer is an important value here at Christian Fellowship. Sunday mornings are bathed in prayer. Throughout the week and Sundays, the elders get together and pray. We have uh, a prayer meeting. Did you guys know, I bet you didn't even know this, about 10, 10, 15, every Sunday morning, you could go upstairs in the loft, and there's a prayer meeting happening every Sunday morning where people share prayer requests, we pray for each other, and we pray for the service. Did you know that that happens every Sunday morning? It's open to everybody. You can get here a little early and get up there, and pray. And think about how different your Sunday would be. Think about how different this time would be. If you got here early, got yourself a cup of coffee, woke up a little bit, spent your morning, spent a couple of minutes being in prayer for one another, being in prayer for the service, getting, re- getting yourself ready to come in here and worship. How different would it be for you to hear the call to worship? How different would things be when you're singing? How different would it be to hear God's word? What would be different if you spent your morning, the first thing that, to get yourself ready is be in prayer together? Every Sunday morning we do it. It's open to everybody. Prayer is important. Praying for one another is important. It is a, a valuable and powerful tool that God has given us that we should use. To pray for them was a joy for Paul. To pray on their behalf, to come alongside them and lift, him, lift them up to God was a joy for Paul. Why? Because of their partnership. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The church in Philippi from day one had supported what Paul was doing. If you look at that chapter, Acts 16, like I was talking about, Lydia accepts the gospel and immediately invites Paul and his friends to stay at her house. She wanted to take care of them and cook them a meal and have a place for them to stay. Later on in the letter of Philippians, we're going to see that the the church has been financially supporting Paul pretty much since that first day in Philippi. And it's a huge blessing and encouragement to Paul. They have been partners in him. Paul sees them as his partners in what he was doing. Partners in ministering and spreading the gospel. As he traveled and was planting churches and proclaiming the gospel all around the world, they continued to do it right there in that town. And they have been faithful in their support of him, of the work locally that they were called to do. 
Like I said earlier, this, it's been about 10 years since Paul first went and was preaching the gospel in Philippi. 10 years and they have not wavered. 10 years they have not stopped supporting him, encouraging him. 10 years they have not stopped preaching the gospel. This brings about in Paul joy to see their commitment, to see the gospel go forward. It, makes, it gets him excited to see and know that there was this church that was with him and supporting him and encouraging him and was all about proclaiming the gospel. Even when he was gone, they were there and they knew the mission they were called to be on. Um, many of you know, if you've been around for a while, we, uh, earlier this year we um, uh, had a budget announced. Um, a budget where these are the things that we wanted to do this year as a church. Um, and this was the money that we were going to need to be able to pay the bills and do some of the things we wanted to do. We want to be able to get back to, to giving to missionaries. We want to set up a benevolence fund. Um, we want to do some repairs on the building. And, and so we talked about how much it was going to cost, how much we projected we were going to need in giving uh, to make that happen. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now, uh, but I do know that Right now, we are ahead of schedule where I thought we were going to be. Um, and that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the generosity of you. Uh, your commitment, the commitment of this body to seeing the gospel go forward and seeing this church thrive is amazing and exciting and inspiring to me. So if you have ever prayed for CF once, if you have ever given a penny to this church, thank you. Um, I am constantly just amazed and humbled by the commitment and generosity of this, of this church. And, and so when I read Paul and I see Paul say, it brings me so much joy that you have been committed to seeing the gospel go forward. I can read that, and as your pastor, I say, yeah, I feel the same way about you guys. I think about this church, I think about you all, and it just brings me joy to know how committed to the gospel, committed to having a light on this corner in this building for however many decades it's been around. The commitment of the people who are the generations before us and you all right now brings me so much joy that I can't even put it into words other than to say joy. So thank you. It makes sense. I read this and I say, yeah, Paul, I know what you're talking about. When Paul thought of the church in Philippi, their dedication to the gospel, their, their passion and their zeal for the gospel, it spurred in him a joyful remembrance of them. When Paul thought of the Philippian church, he was filled with joy. But not only a remembrance of them, but an affection for them. Paul had a joyful affection for this church. Look at me at verse 6. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Who's he talking about here? Because it was Paul who was the one who brought the gospel to the people, right? And then they were the ones who responded to it. But see, Paul knows. Paul knows that neither he nor the people were responsible or the ones who deserved the credit for what was going on in that town. It was God. God is the one who initiates our salvation. God is the one who starts this good work. 
Paul talks about it in another letter to another church in the book of Ephesians. It's an important verse. It's right here on the wall. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is not about us. We didn't start it. We weren't the ones who initiated it. God was. It is a gift. It is grace. Paul understands that. Paul knows that, yes, he was the one who actually brought the gospel, and yes, they were the ones who responded and committed themselves to the church, but it was God who was the one who initiated it. He was the one who started this good work. It's not us but God who initiates our salvation. And it is God, not us, who is making us more and more like Jesus. The church word for that is sanctification, being made more and more into the image of Christ. It's a good work that will continue until the day of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Until his second coming, his return, to judge and right what is wrong and put an end to sin once and for all. It's a good work that God will complete. Paul says, I am confident, I am assured, I am 100% confident that he will take care of this and he will complete the work he is doing in you because God doesn't let things go unfinished. Right? Think about that. What if, like, at the creation, we got to day four and God just said, you know what, never mind. I'm good. That's good enough. They can figure it out. That's not how God operates. I will start a hobby or a project or a workout routine and then I give up pretty quickly pretty easily. There are random places in my house right now that I have little projects that I started and haven't completed. That I'm halfway through, sort of. <laughs> and they're taking up space, and I'm avoiding the look from Sarah, because she knows, <laughs> I know that they're there. Yep, I do, I know. But that's not how God works. God isn't like that. If God starts something, he will complete it. He is working on us. He is making us more and more into the image of Christ and will continue to do so until the day Christ returns. Can you see, in just these first couple of verses, can you see the way Paul feels for this church? His affection for them is so clearly on display, though his passion for them is so clearly on display. I personally, after reading and studying this letter for the last couple of months, I honestly don't think Paul felt this way about any other church. I think that this relationship between him and the Philippian church was so deep and so real to him. He had such an affection for them. And his feelings had a cause, right? Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. He said it's right for me to feel this way, to rejoice over you, to be thankful for you, to pray on your behalf. It is right for me to feel this way because of how deep I care for you. The church of Philippi was with Paul no matter what happened to him. Whether he was in jail or not, a prisoner or a free man, they were going to support and encourage him in what he was doing. And because of this perpetual support and affection, Paul didn't feel alone. He didn't feel like he was doing the work on his own. He felt like they were his partners in this. Even though he was always traveling, he was always in and out of prison, he was always being attacked. You've got to figure, Paul's life got, felt pretty lonely at times. 
traveling around the world, constantly having people attacking, constantly having people trying to kill you. You've got to feel like that, that probably is pretty lonely. And yet, even being arrested and chained up, he didn't feel alone or isolated because they have been with him through it all. Deep and close friendships are forged in the hard times of our lives. You find out who is around when everything is in chaos, when everything in your world is a mess. Who is there to support and encourage you and go through those times with you? I have been blessed in my life to have guys, friends that have stuck with me through the mess and ugliness of my life. And because of their constant support, because of their constant encouragement and their constant loyalty, I in turn care for them deeply. I care what happens to them. And in turn, I support and encourage and love them however I can. Because I know they are true friends with me no matter what. This relationship between Paul and these Christians was deep and powerful. And Paul was thankful for it. Verse 8, he talks about, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I have a long, deep love for you. Even when they are separated, even though he hasn't seen them in a while, it is a deep and emotive love. Now, Paul was a very intellectual guy. He was a scholar. He grew up and was studying to, to be a Pharisee. And he was studying under one of the best teachers. And he was the top of the class. He was, we're going to see later on, he talks about his resume, and not many men had the resume Paul did. He was a top intellectual kind of guy. But he was also very emotive. He felt deeply about the gospel. He felt deeply about people. And because of that, he had a deep relationship and he could build these friendships and relationships with these churches because it wasn't just that he would go into these towns and give them a bunch of knowledge, but he showed compassion and love and care for those people. Deep and pure and unconditional love. He equates the love he has for the Philippian church as the kind that Christ has for us. Deep and pure and unconditional. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about the kind of love Christ has for us. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now listen to this part. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ's love for us was so deep, is so pure, is so unconditional, that it motivated him to endure the cross and all that went with it. The beatings, the mockery, the swears, the spits, getting his beard pulled out, getting all of that, the crown of thorns, it was his love for us that motivated him to do that. The joy set before him, the joy of knowing that because of his sacrifice, we would be forgiven. We would have the ability to have his righteousness imparted onto us. And that fact was enough to have him endure that suffering. The love Christ has for you was on display at the cross. A love that knows no bounds and no restrictions. A love that cannot be stopped. Paul experienced this kind of love from Christ, just as we have. And so he was able to show it to the church in Philippi. 
because he understood what love was. We learn what love is from Christ. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Christ taught us how to love. By dying on a cross for us, he modeled a self-sacrificing kind of love, a love that is unconditional because we were still sinners when Christ died for us. So it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with how good we are, how many times we show up to church, how much money we put in the pot. It has nothing to do with any of that because he already did his work. He already did that sacrifice well before any of us had the opportunity to try and earn our favor with him. Paul says, I have this kind of love for you. I have this kind of love for the Philippians. Christ has this kind of love for you. We learn what love is from Christ. Who in your life needs to know about this kind of love? How can you best show this kind of love to others? Who needs to experience it? Paul had a joyful remembrance of this church. And more than that, he had a joyful affection for this church. And he had a joyful hope for this church as well. Look at verse 9 with me. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 9 here starts a prayer for the church. Remember, he talked about, I joyfully pray for you. And this is one of the things he prayed for them that your love may abound more and more. Now it's clear from the way that Paul talks about this church that the Philippian church clearly had a deep love and community, a deep connection. They showed this love to Paul. And even still, even though he knows that they have a deep and real love, he says, my prayer is that your love would grow deeper and deeper still. That they wouldn't rest at just having enough love, enough community. Hey, we like each other enough. Hey, we're connected enough, and that's as far as we're going to go. That they wouldn't rest on their laurels. But no, Paul says, I pray that your love grows deeper and deeper. That you would learn to love each other better. That you would learn to love those outside of the church better. That you would learn to love Christ more and more, deeper and deeper. But in addition to a deeper love, Paul wants them to have a love that is built on knowledge and discernment. A love that is built on knowing God's love, knowing the truth found in Scripture about what it means to love someone, to truly care for them, to truly put their needs ahead of our own. The love Paul is talking about here is a love that is not based on an emotive feeling. It's not based on a situation. It's a love based on the knowledge of who God is. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders at the time, Paul himself before he was converted, would express that they loved God, that they loved the Old Testament law, that they loved God, and that was their motivation for persecuting Jesus. That was their motivation for persecuting the church was because they loved God so much they thought this is something anti-church and we have to destroy this thing because it's attacking what we know to be true. You see, they had a love, but they didn't have knowledge and discernment. They didn't understand the truth of what was happening. We find knowledge and discernment in Scripture. God's word to us, God's revelation to us about who He is. The way you show love for others will be improved the more you study the Bible. 
The more you can grow in knowledge and discernment, the deeper your love will grow, the, the better you will be at learning how to best love others. And I've got to say, right now is a perfect time to start growing in that. You guys have heard me talk about it for the last five or six weeks. Small groups start tomorrow night. Women's group, Monday night, 7 o'clock. We've got a mixed Bible study that's happening Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. We have a men's group that's happening on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. We have a Sunday morning group that meets at 9.30 every Sunday morning. Small groups are a place to grow in your knowledge. It's a place, a safe place where you can ask questions. A place to learn from each other and practice how to grow deeper and deeper in our love for one another. It's a place where we can build relationships, where we can ask hard questions and use each other, use the knowledge and experience each other has. They're starting this week. Make plans to be there. Because these groups are going to, this is where life can happen. This is where real relationships can be formed in these small groups. And as you guys know, we announced it last week, starting tomorrow, we're starting a two-year read-through-the-Bible program. We're going to be reading God's Word together, learning more and more about Him, learning more and more about who He is, and to help us show love to those around us, even the ones who are it's hard to love. There's reading plans, there's hard copies on the back connect table. We're going to do a reading plan where it's two chapters a day, six days a week. Two chapters a day. We're going to do this together. Nobody's going to check. Nobody's going to keep tabs on you. But I want to offer this as a resource and as something to try. Even if you've tried to read through the Bible in a year or two years and you failed before, that's okay. We're going to do this together. And even if while we're doing it, you fall off and, and you miss a couple of days, that's okay. Keep trying. Two chapters a day, six days a week. We're going to start right at the beginning. We're starting in Genesis. So tomorrow we get to read about how God created everything out of nothing. I'm so excited to do this reading program. I mean, think about it. For those of you who have read the Bible, those of you who have studied the Bible, and you know just in your individual life that you have seen, I've read the Bible and I've seen fruit from that, right? God's Word is living and active. And so you've seen fruit from that. Now think about that, but think about the fact that we all, how many people are going to do it? 20, 30, 40 people are going to read the same text all together. Think about the fruit that can come from that. Think about the relationship, the questions we can ask each other, the the way we can see where two different people can read one passage, take something different, and God can speak to them independently in that. We can encourage each other in it. We can support each other in it. I'm so excited to get this plan going. Like I said last week, I didn't want to wait till January. I wanted to get this going now. So we're going to start tomorrow. Two chapters a day. We're going to do this together, and we're going to grow in our knowledge and discernment. And we can practice this. We can practice this deepening love. We can practice our knowledge and discernment right here in the church. The church is a safe place to learn and and experiment and try and grow in how to show love to people who are different than me. How do I love someone who I have nothing in common with? I mean, look around this church. We're a pretty different bunch. It's awesome, and I love it. That's one of the beautiful things about Christian Fellowship Free Church is that we're a different, unique body. And this is a safe, healthy place to practice. How do I love someone who comes from a different culture than I am, who has has a different experience and a different background than me? This is the place to practice that. Paul's prayer for those people isn't just that their love would abound and have knowledge and discernment. There's a reason for it. 
There's a reason he wanted them to grow in it, and it's in verses 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It was so that they would learn about what the things that they should be pursuing are. That they would learn what are the things that are good, what are the things that are excellent, what are the things that are pure. If they grow in a love built on knowledge and discernment, they will be better at knowing what things to accept. Paul says, I want you to grow in this so that you can have a discerning heart, so that you won't just follow every different idea out there. We have the same struggle today. See, don't tell me that the Bible isn't living and active, because this was written 2,000 some odd years ago, and it still holds true today in 2016 in Chicago. We live in a culture that emphasizes political correctness and universal acceptance and universal truth and everybody's belief is fine as long as nobody's stepping on each other's toes. Everybody's way is fine. All beliefs, all roads lead to heaven. All dogs get to heaven. It's just not true. It's just not true. And so the best way to discern what is good and pure and excellent is we need to grow in our knowledge and discernment. Yes, we need to show grace and love to everyone. We need to be a people of grace and love. But we also live in a fallen world. We live in a place which means that there are things that are not excellent. There are things that aren't pure. There are things that we have to be cautious to avoid. We as Christians are constantly being watched, constantly being being observed. Any time a professing Christian says or does something wrong, we're attacked and labeled as hypocrites and liars. Just one more reason why the church is full of a bunch of phonies. Paul wanted the church to pursue what is good, what is pure and excellent, so that the outside world would have nothing to attack them with, so that they could truly be lights in the darkness. We want to pursue the things that are good and draw people to the gospel. But that won't work if we follow and accept every different ideology, every different value system that the world says is important. If we look, talk, think, act like everything else and we just accept blindly every idea that's out there, how are we going to draw people to the gospel? He said earlier, when he addressed this letter, he said to the saints in Christ Jesus, to those who are set apart. Christians, we are set apart to be different. And the way that's going to happen is if we grow in our love and our knowledge and discernment. And the only way we can do any of this is through Jesus. The only way we can truly show love is by first experiencing that love. The love he showed for us at the cross. The love he showed for us by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And then practicing that love for others. Practicing that unconditional love to others. The only way we can grow in knowledge and discernment of what is true is to study the Bible. God's gift to us, which God's gift to us, which is about Jesus. It all points to him. The whole book is about him. The whole book makes much of him. The fruit of righteousness that Paul talks about here in verse 11 comes from Jesus. We inherited his righteousness when he died for us. He gave it to us so that we could stand before God, not as sinners and rebels and enemies, but as his children. The fruit of righteousness doesn't mean Christians are perfect. Christians have sinned, Christians will sin. Amen? 
But God is making us more and more into the image of Christ. The fruit of his righteousness is shaping us and making us more and more like Christ to bring glory and honor and praise to God. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that they would pursue these things so that glory and honor and praise would be brought to God. And I think this needs to be our prayer. Our prayer for one another, our prayer for Christian Fellowship Free Church, that we are constantly pursuing a deeper love. That we are constantly pursuing a knowledge and discernment. That we are growing more and more into the image of Christ daily. Not to make a big deal of us or even to make a big deal of this church, but instead to bring glory and praise to the one who began a good work in you and will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Let's pray.